Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org donate. For today's episode, Jeremy Fackenthal speaks with Zach Walsh, who works at The One Project as a senior researcher of economics and governance. The One Project is a recently launched think tank that is rooted in relational ways of thinking about ecology, economics, democracy, and more. Their research focuses on how to create practical, equitable systems that align and enable the flourishing of humanity with the rest of life. Jeremy talks with Zach about his work with The One Project and about his interest in the ideas of commoning and the commons, which is to say, democratized pools of resources that are accessible to all members of society instead of being privately owned. The idea of the commons encompasses both natural and cultural resources, from air, earth, and water, to art, music, and digital information. Zach helps us gain a clearer understanding of this idea, how it relates to relational philosophy, bioregional planning, ecological civilization studies, and where commoning is happening on the ground today. And now, here's Jeremy and Zach. I am joined today by Zach Walsh, who is a longtime contributor and friend of Institute for Ecological Civilization. Zach is a PhD candidate in process philosophy with Claremont School of Theology. Um, He has recently worked for the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, Germany, where he co-led the project A Mindset for the Anthropocene and is now a senior researcher um, for the One Project. Um, Zach, it's it's good to connect with you this way and to have you on the podcast. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. Uh, Always good to connect and looking forward to the discussion. Great. Um, First, can you just describe the kind of work that you're beginning to do with the One Project? Yeah. um, So I've uh, been with the One Project for about seven or eight weeks now, and I'm a senior researcher focused especially on uh, economics and governance. And the first big project they've asked me to do is a sort of landscape review. Um, The One Project is a think tank that's Uh, a year or two old and so they're really focused at the moment on large-scale scoping uh, research um, related to a bunch of different domains. They started especially uh, researching a lot of philosophy and looking at relational thinking which is also a strong interest of mine and now they're looking at um, designing new economic and governance systems and so particularly I'm looking at economics and trying to understand the different components of various economic systems such as capitalism, socialism, Uh, mixed versions thereof, also anarchism, and the commons is a very strong interest. Um, Finally, we're also looking at some more speculative uh, utopian visions of how economics could be designed. So I'm looking at those uh, five in particular and trying to understand um, different um, subsystems within those like ownership systems, financial systems, exchange systems, consumption systems, um, and sort of uh, governance systems, yeah. (laughs) Very cool. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to focus on today um, in our chat together is um, your work on commons and Mm -hmm. commoning. 
So I just wanted to start by, um, for listeners who may not be familiar with this idea, seeing if you can explain what the term commons means, um, and then how also that relates to um, your understanding of global commons, which is a term that people may or may not have, have heard of as well. Sure. So the commons, um, typically they're traditionally thought as common pool resources, which is a resource that is uh, held in common, owned in common and shared and maintained in common. Uh, so rather than typically forms of ownership being either in the hands of the state or in the market in terms of private individuals or corporations, uh, the commons are really self-managed by communities or uh, either large scale or small scale. And uh, in that sense, all the community members have a right to use the resource held in common, but also the responsibility to maintain it. So it's a sort of a much more democratic, uh, flat way of organizing resources. Um, but I guess um, to sort of extend the idea further that um, earlier research in common pool resources, um, which was based on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, really focus especially on uh, resource systems like water systems and fisheries and land-based um, agricultural systems. And the commons is a much broader notion that also extends to digital infrastructure, uh, knowledge production, cultural systems, pretty much anything can be held and organized in commons at the community level. Um, and then if you think of the global commons, perhaps as maybe the largest iteration of it, we typically, again, sort of think of the atmosphere, for instance, or the oceans, or even space um, as a global commons. Um, but you could also, again, think of the internet as a global commons, something that uh, everybody has access to, but also responsibility to maintain. Yeah, that gets at the idea of that commoning or commons can extend pretty far and into a number of different areas. Um, in what way does this tie into a discussion of subjects and objects? Mm. <laughs> so we, we typically view things that are held in common as sort of objects like um, Antarctica or space would be an odd object, I suppose. <laughs> but, but is there a sense in which that sort of relationality breaks down or the distinction between a subject and object breaks down? Yeah, great question. <laughs> and it's almost as if you've, um, you know, gone straight to the chase, but also straight to the newest uh, and latest and, and you know, <laughs> most interesting forms of thinking about the commons, which maybe I'll just introduce. So in the earlier forms of understanding commons more as common pool resources, there was a tendency to objectify commons um, in much the way that capitalism, for instance, sees things as objects, as, as resources uh, to be maintained and used. Um, and that was useful, especially within a sort of main, more mainstream economic understanding of resources. But uh, the reality is that commons are much more complex. And so, especially building on the work of uh, two authors, Silke Helfrich and David Bollier, who are good friends and colleagues of mine, they've developed notions of commoning, which really uh, makes commons into a verb. So the shift from commons as a noun to the commoning as a verb is an important uh, sort of relational shift to emphasize the social dimensions that, of commoning. That commoning is a social process, that it's built on relationships, um, requires networks of collaborating people and not just humans, but also non-humans to contain, continue to sustain the commons. Um, and then perhaps also an even more expansive notion of the commons that I, I love is from this um, philosopher in Berlin, another friend, Andreas Weber, who talks about um, 
commoning as a sort of spiritual idea that everything human and non-human is engaged in processes of commoning, processes of symbiotic living together, conviviality, uh, that also is a sort of ethical uh, turn towards uh, life in common and how we can sort of enliven each other, looking also at Christopher Alexander and more expansive notions of systems aliveness. Mm, nice. How do you see, I mean, I, I mean, immediately seeing connections between this kind of commoning and uh, what we refer to as ecological civilization. So from a just purely conceptual or theoretical level, where, where do you see those kinds of overlaps? Another great question. Um, Wow. Okay. So to me, I even want to speak maybe personally, like, because I'm engaged both in a lot of commons related work and I've been collaborating since the beginning of uh, EcoCiv yeah. um, and also collaborating with others in Germany on sustainability work. The, to me, the importance of commoning really um, extends to this sphere of sustainability, especially in the next 50 to 100 years, as uh, we meet increasing constraints around resources. Um, commoning is a way, I think, to, sh to share and maintain um, what sustains life uh, in a really much more sustainable way than is sort of currently practiced within capitalist or socialist mixed economies. Um, and the reason that is, is because first, is to your point, like, there's this dimension of relationality where everything is a subject, not an object. Uh, so there isn't this sort of idea of human supremacy or sort of dominion over others as resources, whether human or non-human, uh, right. you know. Um, but then it also, I think, um, from a material systems perspective, um, is a much more efficient way to produce and distribute, allocate resources because you don't have phenomena of hoarding. You don't have um, a sort of intrinsic need to grow the economy the way that you do under capitalism with GDP and uh, other incentives for growth like interest and fractional reserve banking. The commons is a completely other way of redesigning all social systems. And I think in and through that redesign is this notion of sustainability. Then take it into a more practical level or, or thinking about the practical implications. I mean, you've already mentioned that there are ethical implications. There are obviously economic implications to this. How does one begin to put together the pieces of what commoning is mm. in practice? Mm. It's almost hard to say in the abstract because commons are also very contextualized and place-based mm. and community-based. And so you can at different hierarchical orders of complexity, build commons, like you said, at the global level of atmospheric uh, commons and sort of develop uh, systems or international agreements for managing the atmosphere and sort of also sanctions against, say, companies or countries which were to pollute the atmosphere, mm -hmm. uh, the sort of tragedy of commons that you hear about. But you could, a lot of times, often people organize uh, in local communities to create agricultural commons or self-sustaining sort of communities um, in which everything is holistically integrated within a commons-based system, but again, in a much more context uh, that's local to their, their neighborhood or their bioregion. So there are certain principles that uh, more or less translate across domains. And again, the earliest work done by Ellen Ostrom outlined sort of eight different principles, such as defining clear boundaries and developing rules for punishing or for regulating the maintenance of the commons. These kinds of things are pretty relevant across the domains. 
But I just also want to, again, emphasize that local knowledge and local traditions are always part and parcel of how the commons are really understood and practiced. And so um, you really have to start talking about specific forms, if that makes sense. Yeah, in fact, you mentioned the word bioregion, and we've been doing a lot of thinking, a little bit of writing on um, bioregional planning, with which I think this idea of commoning fits very well. So it is very much a contextual process that takes into account not just the humans living in a particular space, mm -hmm. but also the natural features, um, animals, um, mm -hmm. rocks, trees, the land um, mm -hmm. of that space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, with that, what are the implications for how we organize our ourselves as human beings in relationship with that sort of surrounding space? Or could you begin to tease out some of the, the ethical implications in commoning that have to do with interrelationality or even the sort of social structural um, relationships that that entails? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> and I'm not wanting to get too abstract too. Uh, right. but <laughs> Just go ahead and write a dissertation. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just such a big question and I don't want to be abstract, but there, you know, and earlier on in my work actually, because again, I also have a background in not just relational process thinking and sustainability, which uh, highlights the sort of metaphysical and in the case of the process relational thinking dimensions of interrelationality, mm -hmm. um, but with sustainability focuses, especially on ecological, social ecological relationality. I also have a strong background in Buddhist and contemplative studies and so some of my earlier work two or three years ago was on what I was just at the time calling contemplative commons to try to understand the commons in this more expansive way as a sort of culture of practice. Um, and so one of the ways to answer this question is really to think of how personal social ecological systems um, intra-relate, and I like the word intra-relate mm -hmm. or intra-action, borrowing from mm -hmm. Karen Barad, the sense that also, as you said, in, in relational thinking, interrelationships are not um, just extrinsic or externally uh, yeah. focused, but are actually always co-constituting each other. And so my body is actually composed of um, multitudes, <laughs> mm -hmm. whether that's bacteria, um, you know, water, 70% of my body is water. So I am not um, me, I am many. <laughs> right. um, yep. And so, at that very personal level, I think um, there is a sort of greater sensibility towards both precarity, but also sacredness of life, um, because everything is sort of in a symbiotic relationship with each other and requires these sort of codependent relationships for their own um, sustainability. And so I think it requires a greater attunement and sensitivity towards what creates flourishing both for oneself and for others that one is in relationship to. Um, and that is an ethic of, sometimes I also say responsibility as the ability to respond, to perceive, to sense uh, what is creating flourishing in me and in others and how to more situationally adaptively sort of be responsible, whatever the situation may be. Um, and that's a very ethical and spiritual way to answer the question. Um, and of course, there are many other ways. For instance, let's just like turn to completely other territory. Let's think of uh, socioeconomic systems in terms of like data processing and 
uh, feedback loops. And so interrelations in that sense is happening, as you said, sort of more systemically. And to understand those complex interrelationships and higher orders of complexity, um, we can adaptively design systems to take into account what have formerly been externalized and internalize those within our metrics, within our systems of accountability, within uh, the way that we design society so that we are more responsible towards others. Mm, nice. Can you um, clarify or just explain maybe further the relationship between the intrinsic and extrinsic that you just touched on there? So in the largest sort of sense, um, the commons also is a shift in worldview, is a shift in paradigms, a shift in thinking in terms of relations, not as extrinsic, but as intrinsic. And to contextualize what I mean by that, maybe it's often easiest to say the modern worldview that was sort of inaugurated through many of the early modern thinkers, such as Newton and Descartes and um, Hobbes and Bacon and, other, and Kant, um, tended towards a kind of uh, mechanistic view of the world, as you said earlier, in terms of objects and in terms of extrinsic or external relations between objects, but never in terms of how objects were co-constituted internally by themselves and other objects. And so that's a complete shift. And in the Commons discourse, just in the last uh, year, there was a book um, published by, again, Silke Helfrich and David Bollier, um, called Fair, Free, and Alive, where they talked about something called the onto-shift. And the onto-shift is an ontological shift towards relationality, towards perceiving and uh, sort of living in the world based on this sense of internal, not external relationships as, yeah. as everything as a subject. So does that help a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's ex exactly what I was trying to get at is that that shift from well, an ontological shift or a shift in worldview um, that's needed, which is something that mm. you have worked on in, in multiple spaces mm. um, throughout the last several years, I would say. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, maybe that's like the core because it's a fundamental aspect of the work. Even if I'm in spiritual circles or economic circles or sustainability circles, like somehow that's the yeah. shift I see is needed <laughs> in the next hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that for us, there's a strong overlap with um, ecological civilization mm -hmm. um, requiring that sort of same sort of shift in worldview. Um, totally. I mean, the way that uh, my work and your work converge on the sense of transdisciplinarity and the sense of ecological systems and ecological civilization broadly defined as a redesign of society, globally speaking, through ecological systems thinking, complexity thinking, process relational thinking, um, the threat is, is always coherently there between both organizations and bodies of work, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, before we move into maybe a couple more practical questions, I wanna, well, pull a quote from an article that you wrote um, in the last couple of years that says, Commons generates worlds where we commune with each other and with the environment. Um, and so in this sense, the environment, um, like we've been saying, is no longer just an object, but is also mm -hmm. a subject uh, with which we commune um, on a very um, interrelated or intra-related um, sort of level. This obviously imposes some ethical implications for then how we treat the environment around us. 
whether it's a you know large scale commons such as oceans or atmosphere or on a much smaller level level within a biosphere can you explain some of the ways that you talk about those ethical implications and the way in which we in the environment sort of impinge upon one another um so maybe again just to give some comprehensiveness to it and i'll give like a philosophical example and a practical example so from the philosophical perspective there's a lot of work converging now around post-humanism and some post-naturalist ways of thinking that talks about the environment not as something out there right in terms of earlier enlightenment and romantic ideals of uh the environment as a an object as we talked about or even a subject but a subject that is somehow uh, idealized um, in terms of qualities of mind and idealized as romantically um, something that we're in a transcendent sort of vertical relationship to but i think the the what's interesting about the latest thinking in post-humanism and post-naturalism is there's a complete deconstruction of the environment as not something green as not something in nature in terms of landscape <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in terms of what conservationists would traditionally think of as natural environments uh, devoid of human incursion but rather in environments and ecology is is in and through everything whether it's urban or rural whether it's inside or outside and so timothy morton um and a lot of other post-humanists talk about this sort of meshwork, if it were, of the environment as including everything within it. And then practically, um, one example I might give is like the rights of nature or a lot of the initiatives around Earth jurisprudence that have sprung up, especially in the last few years, uh, starting yeah. about 10 years ago, like 2008 in Bolivia and Ecuador and the signing within their constitutional law, uh, particular rights of nature that within a human rights paradigm uh, actually afforded non-humans personhood, legal personhood, which also allowed other humans to then also sue on behalf of non-human persons if their right to life or however that was defined were um, infringed upon. If if a company, for instance, um, polluted the river and the river uh, had a right to fresh water, then somebody within that state who um, abides by that constitutional nature could sue the company. Um, so that's just like a practical inv- uh, implication of earlier indigenous forms of knowledge. And again, it's always context and place based. So within Bolivian Ecuador, indigenous knowledge that circulated around concepts of Buen Vivir or living well, uh, then translated into public policy frameworks that actually um, could regulate businesses and communities. Actually, so picking up on um, on the connection with indigenous communities, it seems like it, certainly in work on commons, and I would say work on bioregional thinking as well, uh, there's very much in which a sense in which um, pre, pre-modern or pre-enlightenment philosophical ways of thinking about the earth and our relationship to it uh, have a place. So... Mm-hmm. there's a sense in which we can go back to thinking that already existed and sort Mm -hmm. of re-engage with that rather than just sort of moving blindly forward with this ideology that was handed to us from the modern era. Um, Do you see that in other places or other spheres of um, descriptions of the commons? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so indigenous lifeways often are organized around commons thinking, although they wouldn't necessarily use that language or define themselves as commons. They often right. have forms of re reciprocal exchange. They often have um, forms of community self-management. They often have an intrinsic sensibility towards non-human others, place-based knowledge that also translates into systems of accountability. Um, so totally, a lot of the commons discourse, I think a subset of it is focused on uh, indigenous communities that have maintained commons-based systems much more than Western, modern, um, Euro-American typically societies, which have really lost touch with uh, earlier pre-modern, as you said, sort of forms mm -hmm. of commoning because of uh, starting especially in um, the early modern period, the Enclosures Act in England, which privatized land that was formerly held in common and then going through the Industrial Revolution and uh, onward, sort of the further enclosure of space and place, <laughs> and then yeah. further enclosure of people through the human slave trade, which was horrific, and just continued enclosure now in um, terms of even our mental ecology through the digital capture of our attention, um, through the gig economy. There's just a continued relentless pursuit of privatization of resources that's happening. And so I really agree with you that it's behooves us to uh, see uh, what the enlightenment in the modern period left out and the sort of what are the shadows of, of the enlightenment in modern period. At the same time, I wouldn't advise certainly to uh, revert or romanticize pre-modern forms as the solution. I think a, what would be more fruitful would be a sort of um, more nuanced take on the um, I guess advancements and advantages of certain modern scientific rational uh, ways of thinking in conjunction with a larger ecology of knowledge and a larger ecology of practice, which uh, includes and often centers uh, indigenous pre-modern forms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with that, in fact, in bioregional talk or bioregional thinking, a lot of times people use the term autonomy, which is very much an enlightenment sort of term and notion to talk about decision making within a, a particular sphere. And so autonomy in that sense is a very good thing because it means that uh, people alongside the land or taking land, water, animals within that bioregion into account get to decide for themselves rather than being imposed upon from some sort of system or structure outside of the bioregion. Mm -hmm. um, but it's I mean, it's odd in a sense to take this term that is so heavily enlightenment and also tinged with so much, uh, I mean, problematic thinking in other ways uh, and use it positively in that sense. In thinking about commons, is that kind of um, autonomy within a bioregion helpful? Um, or do you, would you replace the word autonomy with some kind of um, inter- relational or intra-relational mm. kind of thinking or language? Good question. I don't certainly have an answer, um, but uh, maybe more like we'll want to problematize the kind of tension that I think is implicit in what you just said, which is that um, I hear maybe a potential for autonomy to be in the um, proactive sense 
design other than human, more than human entities um, in a way that allows us to respect their right, their right to life, uh, yeah. their right to flourish um, and not on our own terms. That is much easier said than done, obviously. <laughs> and from the uh, practical, even policy perspective, uh, mentioning again, maybe the rights of nature discourse, the challenge of that is precisely in those uh, details of actually measuring, uh, defining what constitutes in very contextual ways um, life's right to live. And so if it's a river, for instance, does that mean that the river has such and spe such specific qualities? Does it uh, require a, you know, clean water, the right to flow? How we define that is tricky. Um, mm -hmm. And there, you know, there are also even ways in which the even desire to instrumentalize or to measure uh, through metrics, through scientific or expert ways of rationally thinking um, of those systems, it does a sort of disservice to the entities themselves. And so far it prescribes uh, human ways of relating and human ways of thinking about them. And that's a lot of the challenge of even more mainstream, um, sometimes often capitalistic ways of thinking of natural resources in terms of ecosystem services, which certainly goes down a, uh, a challenging direction. Um, so autonomy in the sense that it, it, it um, confronts the human with the radically other than human or more than human and, and forces us to reckon with uh, how to respect life on its own terms. Uh, I think yes, um, but autonomy is also potentially um, isolated and independent. Uh, I think no. Uh, I think the common mainstream ways of thinking of autonomy often associate a kind of individualism or objectification of entities um, that is problematic. Um, so yeah, I might suggest uh, other relational ways of thinking through even maybe spiritually or ethically how to relate uh, with more humility and less hubris, um, mm -hmm. which actually is a complete reorientation of epistemology as well. And just sort of thinking rather than thinking scientifically or rationally, thinking less and being more, <laughs> being in mm -hmm. one's body and sensing mm -hmm. and perceiving and listening deeply. <laughs> so that might go down another rabbit hole, but I, I think that we would have to think of um, other ways of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, turning to the more practical, where are the places where commoning is happening, um, sort of on the ground, so to mm. speak? Good question. Maybe two, like I'll say two, again, like very different ways of answering this. One is like uh, they always have been and always are. Uh, so that's like in many ways, one could say the default mode of um, material and social reproduction. Um, even though it's often discounted or captured by uh, global capitalist private markets. Um, it continues to be an incredibly important um, way to organize uh, indigenous communities, especially to reach uh, sufficiency and um, to sustain themselves and provide for their own material needs. And that continues to this day. Um, but there are also uh, the second way to answer that question, I think, Interesting ways in which the commons is re-emerging. Um, and then I'll maybe even say two things there. One is because of new digital technology and new uh, movements towards urbanization, a sort of fourth wave of commoning that is happening through peer-to-peer uh, -peer production and digital commons and 
urban commons that is distinctively different. Um, and that provides unique opportunities to re-envision global society uh, in a more democratic way. Of course, it could also go in a more authoritarian and dystopic <laughs> way, which is another rabbit hole we might yeah. not want to go down. Um, right. And benchmarking that, I guess the other way to put this is that um, since the 2008 financial crisis and also the Euro uh, debt crisis uh, and COVID, uh, there are uh, there's new renewed interest in commons as ways to mutualize resources as uh, ways to provide sufficiency outside the market in the state. And so those are really encouraging to me because it, it actually indicates a growing trend that I think has the potential to really become more global in terms of its spread. And um, I think it's really meeting a need that people have as social, economic, political systems collapse because common-based systems afford um, more democratic ways to sustain community needs, to provide for each other. And so, yeah, I, I'm looking for the commons, I think, as a, a pathway forward through crisis. That's great. I was, yeah, so I was actually going to turn to um, the question of COVID-19 and a lot of people are talking about or using the phrase uh, build back better. Mm. Um, mm. You know, you could raise a mm. question as to whether what it means to build back at all, <laughs> mm. um, or is it building differently and maybe not building back? So I, I wonder how you would respond to that phrase um, mm. or how you would nuance that idea um, with mm. commoning in mind. Yeah, so I mean, it's almost an extension of like your last question where we left, um, because you can, again, not wanting to speak abstractly, think of um, after the 2008 financial crisis in the United States, we had the emergence of Occupy Wall Street. And also after um, Hurricane Katrina, we had the emergence of a lot of mutual aid and a lot of um, commons based uh, community led organizations that provided for people um, outside the market and state because those were irresponsible, irresponsible and unresponsive. Um, and so those are just examples of how there's this um, surge, I think, of commons-based systems that build up a kind of resiliency and a kind of solidarity that um, is required because the state and the market don't provide for people's needs. Um, and I would also even add a caveat because the tendency to snap back is, can be very strong, right? So after this COVID crisis, as we've already heard with a lot of pundits and politicians saying that we just have to get back to normal and we have to um, think about the market and the economy, there is an assumption already that things were already okay, <laughs> uh, which for most people, um, I think increasingly uh, they realize that that's not the case. And so building, I think, um, is really trying to think outside the paradigm. And I think the commons provides a paradigm for doing that. And yeah, so I would, I guess the last thought I would say is that then with that in mind, I think we should be very careful and deliberate in how we discuss as a society what um, we want because there is in the vacuum uh, that's created through this crisis and others that will come, the possibility both for not just a snapback, but also a form of 
increasing nationalization and increasing um, interference from the state, which in some cases could be positive, but in many cases could also be quite negative. Uh, the state yeah. has its own inefficiencies and in bureaucratization and uh, can sometimes actually be very oppressive. Uh, I don't have to go into detail, <laughs> um, but uh, I think the, the commons provides a, another, a third sort of a, a way or an alternative that also might I say like appeals potentially to both left and right across the aisle because it's um, intrinsically sort of democratic in a way that it uh, again produces and distributes resources. One of the things I was struck by um so it was back in late September, early October, when I was with you um, outside of Berlin, was um, the announcement of one of your um, friends or partners of an open source um, grain seed, yeah, yeah. which made me think about commons in an extremely tactile way huh. in, in, huh. on a topic that had never even occurred to me. But it, hmm. in fact, is the case that most seeds are patented or trademarked mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the ability to have this sort of um, you know what we would think of as a really natural thing mm -hmm. that's held in common and not owned by a corporation mm -hmm. uh, means a great deal right yeah and that uh, I think those are great examples because almost anything can become commodified not yeah. commodified, but commodified and bread and seeds are just one example. Um, and so, yeah, um, as again, this wave of privatization that I mentioned earlier continues, um, we've seen companies like Monsanto and, and other big ag around the world um, take over seed rights, uh, take over the right to life. And uh, genetics is one component of that. Um, so there was an initiative recently, my friend in Berlin created called Open Seed Bread. And he, um, with a team of a few researchers, uh, identified open source uh, grain and has produced baguettes and contracted with uh, companies, um, several already in Berlin who are making that product using open sourced wheat. Um, so that's like one of just millions of possible ways to commodify things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was delicious bread, by the way. It's just as good. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to think about that alongside um, discussions around regenerative, regenerative agriculture that are very much mm -hmm. tied to the bioregional approaches uh, to structuring society. Um, mm -hmm. And then other things that one might include in an understanding of an ecological civilization, which could include um, beyond food systems, education, hmm. um, certainly ways of organizing economy, but also ways of thinking about land use um, mm -hmm. on a very practical level. Um, if you had to take one of those topics and trace out um, uh, your interests in sort of the the tactile implications of commoning, um, which direction um, would you go? I, you know, for myself at the moment, one of the projects that captures my attention the most is the urban commons because it in many ways actually integrates a lot of the different sectors you mentioned. 
mm-hmm. in thinking through the kind of redesign of social structures. And so the urban commons thinks through the urban relationship. I know that urban rural relationship that I know that EcoCiv is engaged with now yeah. around the provisioning of food in regenerative agricultural systems connected to the city and sometimes also in the city through urban gardening and urban forestry and agroecology and what have you. And that's one of many examples because the urban commons also, of course, deals with a lot of digital infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, um, sharing economy, but not in often the sort of more capitalistic versions like Uber and Airbnb, but more in terms of tool sheds and um, common housing projects and car sharing and uh, tool. Yeah, just, just everything. So it's like a way to really think through the connections and also think through some of the challenges because urban commons also often require um, when they're effective, a partnership with the local municipalities and local governments. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah. you have to deal with public commons partnerships and you have to work across um communities, not just of commoners, but also of government officials and civil society, uh, academics. Um, and so, yeah, I would say the urban commons. Um, and I, I maybe just like another example is the ways technology is used in and through the redesign of cities. And like, so we have distributed ledger technologies, new forms of alternative currency, that allow for mutual exchange and mutualization of value to be happening in really interesting ways um, because we're also at a unique moment in our history and development of those technologies where again, more efficient um, information processing, resource distribution um, can happen uh, because we're sort of at a critical point where uh, the technology has advanced to to, the point where we can do those things. It strikes me that thinking through a lot of these very uh, even basic level practical implications, such as not everybody on my block needs to own a lawnmower. Um, mm. that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's obviously a tool that can be shared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it, even those little things require a sort of mind shift in, mm. uh, at least along, among a, a lot of Americans who have, have grown up with or been have this notion of um, self-reliance and individual ownership so ingrained in them. Mm-hmm. Um, you've touched on on sort of um, spiritual or internal aspects of orienting oneself to that transition, and I know you've done a lot of work in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the the particular practices that that you could see individuals? Um, using or going through to make help make that that mind shift yeah it's a good question and it's a challenge I think in this way it's a lot of the indigenous communities we spoke of earlier but um, beyond that even the more maybe non-western less individualistic societies around the world that are culturally more uh, relationally oriented also have a sort of leg up um, because they're Although, of course, many of them, unfortunately, have been integrated into the global economic system to the degree that their social and community fabric has deteriorated over time, they still, uh, relative to Western modern individuals, um, 
have retained, I think, a bit more of their um, solidarity, cohesiveness within their their cultures, and have still uh, maintained practices for um, not just thinking of themselves as individual consumers. <laughs> yeah. um, so, for the, the the Western individual who sort of internalizes capitalism to the degree that they think of themselves as producing and consuming all the time. Mm-hmm. I think um, there are several things maybe that could be done. One is you actually see movements uh, recently that have more and more gone towards voluntary simplicity and intentional living, but also downshifting is an increasing tendency. Um, mm-hmm. Also the degrowth movement uh, in the Global North, especially, um, is thinking through other ways of living, uh, other ways of understanding the good life that aren't based on constant production and consumption. Yeah. Um, and so I think those are important to highlight. And then also, of course, this really requires uh, living and experimenting. And so mm-hmm. I think engaging um, communities and people who are interested in organizing and sharing um, is really important to embody that shift. And so it's not just an idea so that you have a sense of how to live together. And I think that's gonna happen regardless uh, as these multiple converging crises, ecological, economic, and political happen over the next decades uh, because people will be in a position of needing to share and cooperate um, to just sustain their livelihood. But I think the faster we make the transition, the better. So I hear in your question, this implicit, what could we do now? Which is, I think, to engage in community solidarity projects. Um, There's tons of solidarity economies also in the U.S. that are already experimenting with this. So I want to, like, center those movements. Um, And then also spiritual technologies like meditation, but also not just sitting on a cushion, but actually engaging uh, relational practices of of living with, of being together in space, not just um, going to a religious institution to practice, but also practicing with your community. For people who are um, interested in exploring this further, what are um, some resources that you would point them to? Um, That's a great question, yeah. So like the Solidarity Economies Network, um, the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, the Common Strategy Group, intentional uh, living communities, um, eco-villages, mm-hmm. um, urban commons projects. Uh, Shareable is a great website as well for a lot of these resources. Institute for Ecological Civilization. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Um, those are just a few off the top of my head, but yeah. Great. You know, in the midst of, I mean, as we record this, we're in the middle of a global pandemic um, that is precipitating a, a global economic crisis as well. Um, you know, also facing imminent effects of climate change. Uh, and yet it seems like there is hope or there are glimpses of hope. So I'm wondering uh, where you see hope right now, whether it's for or in projects focused on commoning um, or yeah. elsewhere? Good question. Um, the first thing that just popped into my mind, because we haven't talked about it too, is like, um, and but you did mention climate activism and climate change. So I thought of the climate justice movement in the ways that 
that's become very intersectional because I think one of the things we talked about less that really requires mentioning at the end of this podcast is, and I'm sorry it came so late, but just centering the BIPOC leadership and um, those less privileged who are often less in the spotlight that are actually doing the community organizing and actually doing the good work that are often rallying around this idea of climate justice and engaged in um, movements um, that are transitioning the economy and on a large scale, whether it's through the Green New Deal or local solidarity economies, and uh, also often connected to indigenous lifeways and movements towards decolonization and anti-racism. And that to me is, is a very hopeful sign of like a kind of critical mass of people um, engaged in intersectional issues that actually gets at the uh, complexity of the crisis and provides the right solutions because they're thinking through climate change, not as an isolated issue, but as an intersectional crisis of class and race and gender and resources and everything else. So that is exciting to me. Nice. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate being on. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. Thank you.